Alright, I'm happy to be here together with you. And uh, we're going to study our Bibles this morning. What is our topic this morning? Did anyone look in the bulletin? The two covenants. The two covenants. Um, as I've traveled as a speaker, as an evangelist, if there's a topic that is misunderstood in Christianity today, it's this topic. The two covenants. I believe that we need uh, to go back to God's word and to study more closely what those two covenants are. And I believe that even as Adventists, we need to sharpen our minds and our understanding of the covenants. And this is the topic that I've chosen for this morning. And uh, this message I have actually been uh, had the privilege to deliver in different countries. And actually of most of the sermons, of all the sermons I have preached... This is probably the sermon that I've got most response to with people coming to me and saying, now that was helpful. And that's not any glory to me, but that's glory to God that wants us to understand such great themes. Amen? And so it is my prayer this morning that as we study together the topic of the two covenants, that God's Holy Spirit will truly make this subject clear for us. And not only that we may theoretically grasp it and understand it, but that we will also be drawn into that covenant with Him. Amen? So uh, do you have your Bibles with you? Can I see your Bibles this morning? Hold them up for me, please. Or your iPads or iPhones or whatever it may be. Most of you have Bibles here, that's good, because the preacher likes to hear two things, the turning of pages, and then now and then an amen. Amen? Alright, so, and, and, and nowadays, sometimes when I preach to younger congregations, you don't always get the turning of the pages because people are reading the Bible on their iPhones. But uh, I see a lot of you have Bibles here, so I'm happy for that. Alright, turn with me in your Bible to Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 3, and verse 15. We're going to begin our journey in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, and verse 15. What is our topic again? The two covenants. Now before we read this, um, we're going to have another word of prayer. And I just want to invite God's Holy Spirit to be with us as we engage in this Bible study. So if you would bow your heads together with me, let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering in your house, in your presence. And we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit may speak to us and give us an understanding of the covenant relationship that you want with each one of us. I pray that you will tailor make this message to our individual lives and that it may apply to the very needs that we have. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Galatians, chapter 3 and verse 15, we read the following. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it, only be, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Here we find the first principle of a covenant, and that is once a covenant is established, can it be changed, yes or no? It cannot, come on, a little bit of participation here this morning. Can it be changed, yes or no? No, it cannot be changed. You cannot add to it, you cannot take away from it. First principle of the covenant. It can't, once it is established, it cannot be changed. Now Paul here is actually talking about a man's covenant. How much more so if we talk about the covenant with God himself? Amen? The covenant with God, once it's established, it cannot 
be changed. Let's look at another text, the book of Hebrews. I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Now interesting, the word covenant in Greek is the word diethike, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, by the way, I'm not a theologian, and so excuse me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but the word diethike is synonymous, or the word covenant rather, is the word diethike, and the word covenant is synonymous to the word testament. And this is a word we encounter here several times in the book of Hebrews. And I want you to take notice of Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. And here we're going to find our second principle about the covenant, or the second principle regarding the testament. Let's read it in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. Are you there? Amen. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So the word testament here is synonymous to the word covenant. It's interesting. Let me use an illustration here to to show these two principles. If a parent, a father, has three children and writes a testament regarding how his wealth is to be spread amongst his children, when is that testament going to be enforced? When he dies. Very simple. When he dies. If the testament is enforced before he dies, well, that would be kind of horrible, wouldn't it be? I mean, that would be breaking this covenant. The, the testament, the covenant is that after the testator dies, then the testament is enforced. Now, this, the first principle that we looked at in the book of Galatians told us that once the covenant is established, it cannot be changed. Right? So if we go back to our illustration, if the father dies and the testament is there for the children to look at, to develop, divide the wealth according to the wishes of the father, if they would change that covenant, if they would not um, divide the wealth according to what the father has laid down in the testament, that would be breaking the covenant. Right? Are you with me so far? So we have two principles. First principle, a covenant cannot be changed when it's established. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. Um, Number two, principle number two, a covenant or a testament, synonymous words, is established when? At the death of the testator. At the death of the testator. Okay, with that in mind, I would like to invite you to turn to the book of Timothy. Turn to the book of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and chapter 4. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Now, 2 Timothy is by many regarded to be the testament of Paul to young Timothy. Timothy was a co-laborer in the proclamation of the gospel. He was a gospel worker and Paul was his mentor. And here he writes to young Timothy from Rome where he is imprisoned and he knows that he is about to lose his life. Paul understands that his end is very near. And he, is, he, he, he lost his life there in Rome as a martyr. And the last letter that he wrote was the letter to 2 Timothy. Of all that Paul wrote, the last letter is sent to this young man. And in this letter, Paul is basically looking back on his life. 
and he is uh, looking back and not only looking back he's also looking forward to what Timothy is going to do it is like Paul is placing the baton in the hands of Timothy Paul has come to the end of his life and now he is charging Timothy to continue the good work. It is like a testament that is handed down to Timothy. Take notice of the words in 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 6. 2 Timothy chapter 4 beginning in verse 6. These are the words of Paul to young Timothy. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Here you sense very well that Paul knew what was coming. He goes on to say in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What a wonderful, um, what, what, what a wonderful way to end your life. I mean, Paul comes to the end of his life and he's looking back, and with confidence he can say, I have kept the faith. With confidence he can say, I have finished the race. Paul here, in his very life, was writing a testament to now hand down to young Timothy. And it is like the baton is placed in the hands of Timothy. And he is to continue the race that Paul has begun. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4, look at the charge that Paul gives to young Timothy. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy Uh, chapter 4 verse 1 it says I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching this is the charge that Paul is giving to Timothy continue the race Timothy, I have lived my life. Timothy, I have kept the faith. Timothy, I have finished the race, but now I hand down this testament of faithfulness to you. And I want you to continue to preach the word. I want you to continue to exhort in and out of season, at all times, in all places. Continue to spread the gospel and do and walk in my footsteps as I have walked in Christ's footsteps. These are the words of Paul, the exhortion of Paul, the testament of Paul to Timothy. What about the testament of Jesus to us? Let's go to, uh, to the book of John, the Gospel of John. We look here at the testament of Paul to Timothy. But let's look at the testament that Jesus has left us. And in a moment we're going to connect uh, this all with the covenant that God wants to establish with each one of us. But turn in your Bibles to the book of John. That's the fourth gospel book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And chapter 17. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 17 and verse 4. 
John 17 is the prayer of Jesus. It is also referred to as the intercessory prayer of Jesus. This was shortly before the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. And in many ways, Jesus, in his prayer to his Father here, is reviewing his ministry. He is reviewing his time on earth. It's just like Paul, when he came to the end of his life, he looked back on his life as he wrote to Timothy. And here Jesus, in his prayer to his Father, is looking back at his earthly ministry and take notice of his words John chapter 17 and verse 4 Jesus says I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do just like Paul comes to the end of his life and he looks back and he says, I've kept the faith, I've finished the race, there's a crown laid up for me in heaven. So Jesus comes to the end of his earthly ministry, he's praying to his heavenly father and he looks back on his life and he says to his father, I have glorified you on this earth. And what does it mean to glorify God? It means to reveal his character. Remember that instance there in the Old Testament when Moses said to the Lord, show me thy glory. And, and, and God uh, brought Moses up on the mountain, put him in the cleft of the rock, um, and he passed by before him and pro- proclaimed his name and his character to Moses. So to reveal the glory of God is to reveal the character of God, and that's exactly what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. Amen? And so Jesus revealing the glory of God is his testament to you and to me. That Jesus reveals who God is, that he puts his character on display, is the testament that is being passed down to you and to me. Now, when did that testament, when was that testament confirmed? At his death. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Remember, these words in John 17 were just prior to the uh, betrayal and um, the crucifixion of Jesus. And just a couple of chapters on, in John chapter 19, we read about the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want you to take notice of the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross before he died. John chapter 19, and look at verse 30. John chapter 19 and verse 30. The Bible says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, What did he say? It is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The testament is finished. Jesus has now put the character of God on display. And now he confirms that testament with the words, It is finished. And what was the principle of the testament again? I I kind of forgot it. What was the number one principle? It cannot be changed. Galatians 3.15. There's one Bible student here this morning. I, I hope there are more. Amen? Galatians 3.15, what was the principle? That there can nothing can be added or taken away. Amen? So when the covenant is confirmed, nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. When is it confirmed? Hebrews chapter 9. At the 
Death of the testator. There are more Bible students here this morning. Praise the Lord. Two principles. Jesus dies on the cross. His last words is, it is finished. And with those words, the covenant is established. The testator has died. And the testament, the covenant, remember those words are synonymous, cannot be changed. Are you with me? Now, let's, um, let's look a little bit closer at this because, uh, as I said, the covenant, covenant, diathike, testament, they are interchangeable, they are synonymous. How does this then play out? Because in the new covenant, we have certain things that belong to the new covenant. And if we would apply those principles that we have just learned, that would mean that everything that is part of the new covenant had to be established before the death of Jesus. Before the death of the testator. Does that make sense? Now, let's ask ourselves the question then, what belongs to the new covenant? What does a person do when he comes to Christ? When he understands that, that Jesus has died for his sins, how does he outwardly, or how does he or she outwardly show a change in their experience of now belonging to Jesus? What would that be? Baptism, correct. Baptism. Baptism belongs to the new covenant. Um, when did baptism first appear in scripture? John the Baptist. And was that prior to the cross or after the cross? Prior to the cross. It had to be. Because it is part of the new covenant. And the new covenant is established at the death of the testator. And nothing can be changed or added to it. So we have baptism as part of the new covenant established just before the cross. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist as an example to each, for each one of us. Amen? An example of what we are to go to in this, through this new covenant, in this new covenant. Alright, another example. The Lord's Supper. Is the Lord's Supper part of what we do in the new covenant? Yes, it is. Now think about the Lord's Supper because it's quite an interesting one. Jesus gathers with his disciples just before his betrayal in Gethsemane. And he takes them together and he breaks the bread in front of them. And he gives the bread to him and he said, you know, eat and do this in, what does it say? Remembrance of me. Remembrance of what? Remembrance of his death, right? Paul refers later in the New Testament to the fact that we break the bread and we partake of the um, uh, unfermented uh, wine, the grape juice, in remembrance of the death of Jesus. Now think about this. The Lord's Supper, did it happen before the death of Jesus or after the death of Jesus? Before the death of Jesus. And so Jesus is, is introducing the Lord's Supper as a memorial to his death before he died. And, and I very well know that it corresponded with the Passover, and there's certainly a type analogy there of type meeting anti-type. But I think, nevertheless, it is very interesting to note that a memorial of the death of Jesus is instituted before his death. Why? Because the principle of the testament is that after the death of the testator, nothing can be added or taken away. Do you follow? All right, now let, let's, let's take this a step further then. How is this then with the very testament that Jesus has left us? John chapter 17, what did it say? Jesus said to his father, as he's praying to his father, he says, I have glorified you on the earth. 
To glorify God on the earth is to reveal his character. Was Jesus sinless? Yes, he was. He was sinless. He abided by the law of God. He was an example to each one of us of what it means to live in obedience to God. And so his life of faithfulness, his life of obedience was a testament to each one of us. And each and every commandment, the Ten Commandments, were kept by Jesus as, and handed down to you and to me as a testament. As a matter of fact, there on the Sermon of the Mount in John chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to the people there, he says, Think not that I am come to, can anyone finish that verse? Destroy the Lord, the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. But to fulfill. It is finished. It is fulfilled. What is fulfilled? Faithfulness to the law and the prophets. Faithfulness to every commandment of God. Including the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Jesus was faithful to keep the Sabbath as an example for you and me to walk in his footsteps in keeping God's seventh day Sabbath. Amen? Now think about this for a moment. When you meet people from other denominations and they hear that you are a Sabbath keeper... Many times, at least this is, my, this is what my experience has, has been, as I interact with these people that keep Sunday holy, they will use as one of their main arguments, as one of their main reasons why they keep Sunday holy, is because of the resurrection of Jesus. Yes or no? Have you heard that? Certainly. Uh, why do you keep Sunday holy? Well, because Jesus rose on that day. Now think about this. How does that match with the Testament? The testament of Jesus was established when? When he died. At the death of the testator, nothing can be changed. Jesus left us with a testament of faithfulness to his commandments, to the Lord's commandments, including the seventh day Sabbath. And so when people say, well, I keep Sunday because it's a memorial of the testament, too late. Right? Too late. I mean, you're a couple of days too late because according to the principles of the testament in scripture, nothing can be changed after the death of the testator. Are you with me? I believe personally that this is one of the biggest main arguments for Sabbath keeping, but probably least studied of them all. I mean, we have a lot of reasons why we keep Sabbath, and there's a lot of scriptural passages that we use and, and quotes that we gather. But if we would study a little bit more carefully about what a testament really is, this would establish a firm foundation for us as a movement and the reason why we keep the seventh day Sabbath. Amen? Have I lost you, or are you still with me? Uh, what, what was that? Still with me. Okay, good. Good. So what have we discovered so far? We have looked at the principles of a testament, the principles of a covenant. It cannot be changed. Nothing can be added or taken away. And it is established at the death of the testator. Jesus died, left us with a testament, left us with a covenant. And that is the covenant that he wants us to enter into. Now let's read what that covenant is all about. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Looking at verse 16. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16. 
What is that covenant that God wants to establish with us? Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, the Bible says, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now this should be an amen to that. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? The covenant that God wants to establish with us is twofold here. First of all, he wants to write his commandments where? In our hearts and in our minds. But it goes far beyond that. Because the Bible also says that secondary here, he also wants to remember, take away our sins, and he will, he decides to remember them no more. Now, is God forgetful? Can God forget? That's probably a question you could, we could debate the rest of this day. So let's not go there. But God decides to forget. Let's put it that way. He decides to remember our sins no more. That's part of the new covenant. Now, as I began this presentation this morning, there is a gross misunderstanding when it comes to the two covenants. Usually you hear it a little bit like this. The old covenant is the Old Testament. The new covenant is the New Testament. Have you heard that one? Okay, or this one. The Old Testament is the Ten Commandment law, and the New Testament is grace. Have you heard that one before? Okay, this is the general understanding of the two covenants in Christianity at large. And sad to say, it is becoming more and more the general understanding, even in our own movement. There is a great need to study this topic a little bit more closely. First of all, let me show... Uh, let, let me just by, by, by means of illustration here show how um, nonsensical this actually is. What you are saying, if the old covenant is different than the new covenant in the sense of Old Testament, New Testament, commandments, grace, if it is different, what we are actually saying is that God changes. God changes. God had plan A. God thinks to himself, okay, I'm going to make a covenant. By the way, the word covenant simply means agreement. I'm going to make an agreement with my people, a covenant with my people. They're going to keep my law. They're going to keep my commandments. Okay, this is the covenant from my side. You're going to keep my law. The people say, we will do it. Uh, They don't do it. They mess up. And so God uh, stands a little bit back and thinks, oh, that, 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 I really, you know, went wrong there. That was a blunder. Um, let me think what I can do. Plan B. What's going to be plan B? I, I know what plan B is going to be. They don't have to keep the commandments anymore. How does that sound? So, new covenant, grace. I'm just going to look away. You live as you want to live. I'll save you in whatever state you are. As long as you believe in me, that's fine. Done deal. Does God change? What does Malachi tell us? The Lord does not change. What is Hebrew 13, verse 6, I believe it is? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this cannot work. This, this doesn't match up with who God reveals himself to be in Scripture. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord does not change. God did not make a mistake and have to make it right. So what is going on here? The covenant, my friends, was the same all through Scripture from God's side. 
God doesn't change. And so the agreement that God wants to have with His people does not change throughout the whole course of human history. From Genesis to Revelation, from God's side, the covenant is the same. The agreement is the same. Now where did it go wrong? Not on the side of God, but on the side of man. The covenant, the old covenant was wearing out and there was need for a new covenant because the people needed to enter into another relationship with God. In a relationship in which they trusted him and allowed him to do a work in their lives that they could not do themselves. We're going to look a little bit closer at this. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Back to the book of Galatians. Back to the book of Galatians. And turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And here Paul is using a, an incredible analogy to illustrate the two covenants. And we're going to look at this together. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. Listen to what it says. Galatians 4, verse 22. For it is written that Abram had how many sons? Two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he was of the but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, but he of the free woman according to the what? Promise. So how many sons do we have? Two sons, and the one is born by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. Now, um, if you are familiar with the story of Abraham, you will remember that Abram was an old man when he received the promise that he would have, that a nation would come out of him. His wife was old, he was old. Humanly, uh, it was impossible for them to have a child And in Abraham's mind, his servant, Eliezer, was going to be his heir. He did not think that it would be possible for him to have a son. And yet God promised that he would have a son. And so Abraham thinks to himself, how can I help God to accomplish this promise? How can I help God and how can, what can I do in order to bring about this promise that God has given that I'm going to have a son? And so um, in accordance with uh, his wife Sarah, he, um, he uh, takes Hagar, the servant of Sarah, and uh, has a child with her and the child is named, does anyone remember? Ishmael, that's right, Ishmael. Ishmael is the son that Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 4, the son that is born of the bond woman. Because remember, Hagar was a servant of Sarai, or Sarah. And therefore, this is the uh, analogy that Paul is using, is that the son of the bond woman, the son of Hagar, Ishmael, is a symbol of the old covenant. Do you see that? And... Uh, Of course, we know the rest of the story. Eventually, uh, Abraham had to learn the hard way to trust and believe in God's promise. And ultimately, God established his promise with Abraham and Sarah. And they had a child together by the name of Isaac. 
which become, became the patriarch, which kept the line going, out of which came the nation Israel, according to the promise of God. So we have one child, the first child, which is the firstborn, Ishmael, which was, the serv- which was from the bondwoman, a type of the old covenant. And then we have the second son, which was born of the free woman, which is a type of the new covenant. Now, before we look any closer, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more here, so that we can understand the old and the new covenant. But before we do that with these two sons... Ishmael and Isaac, I want to bring you back all the way to the beginning of this story in scripture because the first parents, Adam and Eve, also had two sons that we know of, two sons that had a significant story. That was the first son, Cain, and the second son, who was that? Abel. Now, you can keep your finger there in Galatians or if, you will, if you're able to find it afterwards, you just whatever, you put a ribbon there or whatever. Um, Turn to to Genesis and let's look at the story of the two sons in Genesis. We'll come back to Galatians in just a bit. But turn to Genesis chapter 4 because what I want to illustrate here through this story is that the old and the new covenant go back all the way to the beginning. All the way from Genesis we can find the old covenant and the new covenant existing side by side. It's not about the change of how God wants things to be done. It is the change in the human heart. How we respond to the gift of God. Now look at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. This is just after the fall. Just after Adam and Eve were dispelled out of the garden of Eden. Out of the paradise of God. Chapter 4 and verse 1 it says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife... And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. The interesting thing, by the way, is that the expression a man, actually in the original text, is I have acquired the man. I have acquired the man. In the minds of Adam and Eve, their first son was the establishment of the promise that had just been given in the Garden of Eden. Out of the seed of the woman would come one that would crush the head of the serpent. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and it is implied in the text that they believed that Cain was the establishment of that promise. We have the man. Can you imagine what kind of a disappointment was waiting for them? The one that they believed to be the Messiah became the first murderer. Now look at how the story continues. Verse 2. Then she bore again, and this time his brother Abel. Do you know what the name Abel means? The the name Abel refers to nothing. Now think about that for a moment. Adam and Eve have two sons. Cain, the man. They believed him to be the promised seed, the Messiah. They have a second son, Abel, nothing. It doesn't really matter anymore. The promised one has come. Look at how it continues though. Verse 2, she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord... Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected 
Abel and his offering. My friends, if this was a race, you would see Abel and Cain ready to take off in this race. Cain would be some... uh, some distance ahead of Abel just because his parents put all their hope and confidence on him. He was the man. Abel was nothing really. And yet as the race unfolds, the story changes very quickly. And we know that according to the plan of God, God had spoken to man and said that they were to bring a sacrifice that involved blood. It was a sacrifice, a lamb, a goat, an animal from their flock without blemish was to be sacrificed as a type of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, which is the lamb which taketh away the sins of the world. So each and every lamb that was sacrificed was a type of Jesus. In sacrificing the lamb, man was putting their confidence in Jesus. Not only were they putting their confidence in Jesus, they were also um, obedient to the very requirements of God. And so you look at these two individuals, Abel and Cain, Cain and Abel. Cain is sacrificing no, no animal, but according to the text, his own fruit, his own works. He is bringing to God his own, what he has produced himself, while Abel is bringing the lamb and putting his confidence and trust in Jesus Christ. Now these two examples, my friends, are an example of the old and the new covenant. Cain has a covenant with God, an agreement with God, whereby he is saying, this is what I can do. This, these are my works. Abel has a relationship and covenant with God in which he says, I can't do anything, but I put my trust in the Lamb. I put my trust in Jesus Christ and the promise, and through him I can do all things. And you look at these two sacrifices, which one is the obedient sacrifice? It's Abel, right? Cain brings his own fruit, and therefore, in his own works, he wanted to accomplish this covenant, and it was not possible. And what happens shortly after, you all know the story, is that the one that has, is in the old covenant persecutes the one in the new covenant, and Cain slays and murders his own brother Abel. My friends, this, from the very beginning in Genesis, is an analogy, a story, a type of the old and new covenant put on display right there from the very beginning. Now we fast forward to Galatians, we go back to Galatians and take notice how this plays out in two other sons. We have Cain and Abel in Genesis, but in the book of Galatians we also have two sons in Galatians chapter 4. The first son being Ishmael and the second son here being Isaac. And these two sons according to Paul in the book of Galatians are types of the two covenants. Now let's read in verse 24. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 24. Which things are symbolic, talking about the two sons, for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her, with, with her children. 
But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So Paul makes these two distinctions, two sons, uh, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is from the bondwoman. Isaac is from the free woman. Ishmael corresponds to Mount Sinai and the Jerusalem, which now is in the days of Paul. And Isaac corresponds to the Jerusalem, which is above the new Jerusalem. Now, again, here people, they take this text and they go off because they say, ha, there you have it. The covenant of Ishmael, the old covenant, is the Mount Sinai, the old the Ten Commandments. And uh, so they again say, you, you see there, the old covenant is the Ten Commandments. But my friends, what we need to do is we need to go back to Mount Sinai and see exactly what the covenant was at Mount Sinai. Because that will illustrate something about this old covenant, this covenant of bondage. So let's go back for a moment. Let's go to the book of Exodus. I hope you're still with me here this morning. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Let's take a look at the old covenant in Exodus chapter 19. And Exodus chapter 20, you all know that was where the Ten Commandments were given to the people of Israel. But just prior to that, this covenant is established in Exodus chapter 19. And I want you to take notice of this covenant. Again, a covenant is an agreement. Look at the agreement between God and man in Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 4. Look at the words of God to his people. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore I will indeed, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So I want you to take notice that before the people of Israel respond to this, God portrays himself as the one that has delivered them out of Egypt, delivered them out of bondage. Now, very important question here. How did God deliver them out of Egypt? Now, um, how did he do that? Any idea? You remember the story? He did it through the plagues. Um, it was not the first plague that brought about the exodus. Neither was it the second or the third, even though they all contributed to it. But it was a significant event at the end that coincided with the tenth plague. What was that? Passover, exactly. And what were they to do at the Passover? They were to take the lamb without blemish, which was a type of Jesus Christ. They were to slay the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. Now catch this, it is through the death of the lamb that they were brought out of slavery, out of bondage. And that slavery and bondage of Egypt is a type of sin. And so they are brought out of, we are brought out of our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of his blood. Amen? And it is upon this that the old covenant is established. You see that God, from God's side, the covenant in Exodus chapter 19 was established based on the Exodus. And how did they leave Egypt? The Passover lamb. 
Now the new covenant is also established on the blood of Jesus. And so there's no difference from the side of God. Do you see that? Yes or no? From the side of God, the covenant is established first through the death of the lamb, which was a type of the death of Jesus. So the covenant is the same. Through the death of the Lamb, through the death of Jesus, through that power, you can keep the commandments of God. You can live in obedience to God. Now, look at the response of the people, because this is where we get um, to the very heart of what the Old Covenant is about. Look at the response of the people, verse 7. Verse 7 of Exodus chapter 19. So Moses came and called all the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will keep the commandments of God. Now, were they able to do that? You uh, fast forward a couple of chapters and you read how Moses was up on the mountain and down in the valley they were dancing around a golden calf. My friends, they in their own strength could not keep the commandments of God. Now, this is such an illustration of what many times happens in our Christian experience. Take notice, when they are in bondage of Egypt, and they were going to be delivered out of Egypt, they had to put their trust in the Passover lamb, Right? Now, putting their trust in the Passover lamb is putting their trust in something outside of themselves to enable them to enter, to to, to exit out of Egypt. So they put their trust in the lamb. They slay the lamb. They put the blood on the doorpost. And by the way, the name Passover is really interesting because under the 10th plague, the angel of destruction comes and he passes over, the name Passover, he passes over every home that has the blood on the doorposts. So those that have put their trust in the Lamb are now brought out of bondage. It was through their trust in Jesus that they were brought out of bondage into the wilderness. But now as their relationship with God continues, they think that they can do it on their own. Isn't that what many times happens in our experience? We look at our early Christian experience and we trusted in Jesus. We started the race with him. But a little bit on in that race, we thought to ourselves, thank you God for helping me because I'm not the person that I was. Thank you for what you've done. But from now on, I can do it on my own. Now we might not say it in those words, but that is what many times happens in our experience. We let go of the first love, right? We think we can do it on our own. The people of God in, in, in Exodus, in Egypt, trusted the Passover land which brought them out of Egypt. But when they were on the borders of the promised land and they saw the giants in the land, they thought they could not go in because they were weaker. They did not trust in the power of God anymore. My friends, in the covenant relationship, the covenant is all about trusting what God has promised to perform. The people, when they were standing at Mount Sinai, trusted in themselves. We will do it. Thank you, God, for bringing us out of Egypt. Thank you for the Passover lamb. Thank you for for bringing us out and destroying our enemies. But from now on, we'll be just fine. We will do it. And they miserably failed. 
And that's why we come to the new covenant. Has the covenant changed from God's side? Yes or no? No. God says in the new covenant, here is the blood of the lamb. In the blood of the lamb in the old covenant was through goats and lambs and, 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 and all the other animals in the sanctuary service. In the new covenant, it's the blood of Jesus Christ himself. And in the new covenant, it is still obedience is required. We just read there in um, Hebrews chapter 10, the new covenant is that God wants to write his commandments where? In our hearts. Don't you think that that's exactly what God wanted to do in the old covenant at Sinai? Of course. He wrote it in stone, but it was not to remain in stone. He wanted to write it in the hearts of his people. But they said, no, we'll do it. We're, we're, we're fine. You don't need to do that. We have it on stone. That's enough for us. We'll do it. They miserably failed. My friends, in the new covenant, we understand, we are to understand that we can do nothing without Jesus Christ. But that through him, his promise can be established in our lives. We allow him to write his commandments on our hearts, in our minds. Amen? So go back to Galatians now. Galatians chapter 4. And let's look at the, the analogy there again. It's so powerful. Galatians chapter 4 Galatians chapter 4 verse 22 for it is written that Abram had two sons the one by a bondwoman that's Ishmael the other by a free woman that's Isaac Ishmael and Isaac two sons the one from the bondwoman the other from the free woman but he who was verse 23 of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh And he of the free woman, according to the promise, Abram worked in his own flesh to accomplish the promise of God in having a son with his servant, Hagar. But then he believed the promise of God and had a son, which was Isaac. Verse 24, Paul says, which things are symbolic for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, what happened at Mount Sinai? The people said, we will do it in their own strength. That's what happened at Sinai, which gives birth to what? To bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. In other words, in the very days of Paul, he was still struggling with these things. The people that were, by the way, following him from place to place and making his work miserable making his life miserable. He would go to Thessalonica, they would go to Thessalonica. He would go to Athens, they would go to Athens. They would follow him, trying to lay upon the people the burdens of the old covenant. It was still to that very day, people were abiding by the old covenant. We will do it. And yet, then Paul, he says the following in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is what? Is what? is free, which is the mother of us all. My friends, what do we call the Jerusalem that is above? What do we call it? The new Jerusalem, right? We call it the new Jerusalem. My friends, why is it the old and the new covenant? People get so um, lost in this because they are thinking in chronological order. The old must come before the new. My friends, the old and the new covenant is not about chronology. As a matter of fact, the new covenant is the new covenant. Um, The spirit of prophecy puts it this way. The only fact, the only uh, reason why the new covenant is called the new covenant is because it's newer blood. It's the blood of Jesus. And the new covenant is the new covenant because it is the new Jerusalem from which it originates. Amen? 
This agreement that God will do what he has promised in the hearts of man. And this is the covenant that he wants to establish with each one of us. What a promise. What a promise. And then we, I just want to shortly before we close here. I want to look at the second part of that covenant. Because it's just as incredible as the first part. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 again. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Verse 17. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. I will remember no more. Do you know that when you look in the New Testament... At the story of Abraham, both in the book of Romans it is mentioned and in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the story of faith, that the only thing that is mentioned there is his confidence in God in establishing the promise of him having a son with his wife Sarah. It is incredible that God decides to remember our faithfulness and the time that we enter into that new covenant. Let me show you to, let me show this. Turn to the book of uh, Romans chapter 4. It's just incredible how Abram is put on display in Romans chapter 4. I find it um, just amazing. Romans chapter 4 verse 18. This is talking about Abraham. Romans chapter 4 verse 18. Listen to what the Bible says about Abraham. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed. So that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. Now listen to verse 21. It gets really, really strong here, the language. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm thinking to myself, did the writer of Romans, which was Paul, did he mix up his history here? Right? I mean, when I think about the story in the book of Genesis, was Abram fully persuaded? Did he, he did not waver? That's what it says. My, uh, according to my uh, remembrance of my history... My remembrance tells me that Abram did waver. My remembrance tells me that he actually tried to help God in his own way, according to his own flesh, according to his own works. But my friends, it came to the point where Abram fully trusted in the promise of God. And you fast forward the story, and in the New Testament, when you find the report and testimony of Abraham, his sins are remembered no more. Amen. Turn to, turn to the book of Hebrews. Let me show you this. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Which, by the way, I like to refer to Hebrews 11 as the remembrance of God. This is what God remembers about those that put their faith in Him. This is what God remembers about those that enter into the new covenant with God. Hebrews chapter 11, and look at verse 8. 
This talks about Abram, and then afterwards it talks about Sarah, which, by the way, Sarah, according to my remembrance, she laughed at the promise of God. But take notice what God remembers. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. First talking about Abram, but then talking about Sarah as well. It says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called out to go to a place when he, uh, which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, and heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. She did what? She judged him faithful who had promised. That's how God remembers Sarah. Isn't that beautiful? The new covenant, my friends, is that God remembers our sins no more. Hebrews chapter 11 puts on display, it's like opening up the mind of God. This is what God chooses to remember about these individuals. Now look at Hebrews 11, look at for example verse 31, talking about some other individuals here. It says, by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Talking about Rahab, people could, could remember a lot about Rahab. Number one, she was a whore. But God remembers her faith. Amen? Look at look what it says in verse 32. And what more should I say? For the time would fail me. And the time is failing me by the way as well. Uh, to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Look at these individuals. What do you remember about Samson? What do you remember about David? I mean, whatever we remember from these stories... Apparently, in the new covenant, God, because of their faithfulness, remembers their sins no more. And puts on display their faith in Him. Can you say amen to that? I mean, that's the covenant that God wants to establish with you. You enter into the new covenant with God, and what does God do? He writes His commandments on your heart and in your mind, so that you can live in obedience to Him, so that you can be empowered by Him to do what He has promised, not in your own strength, but in His strength. But then on top of that, He remembers no more your failures and mistakes and sins of the past. He does forget the times that you lived in the old covenant. And he remembers the new covenant. Amen? And many times we try to finish the story for God, and yet God has a much better ending to the story. Amen? You know, in, in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, it's one of my favorite uh, texts in the Bible. And... Um, it just gives us that promise. It says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will do what? Complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Many of us have started out with trusting in the Lamb, but somewhere along in our journey, we've come to think that we can now do it on our own. We've come to believe that God, thank you for saving me, thank you for helping me, but I'll be just fine from now on. My friends, the new covenant is a continual trust in the blood of the Lamb. 
The new covenant is a continual dependence upon God because my friends, the end of the story is much better than we could imagine. He has promised that he will be with us from the beginning till the end. Amen? We many times want to finish the story for God. We think that we know how it's going to end. Lord, thank you for helping me. I'll be fine just now. But let's allow God to finish the story for us. Let's allow God to finish the race for us. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, it says he is the author and finisher of this race. And we are to look unto him with confidence. Don't finish the story yourself, but allow God to finish the story for you. You know, I was once uh, shopping with my wife. This is just an illustration here. We were shopping together and my wife always likes to buy a lot of fruit. And at one point she sees bananas on sale and so she puts all the bananas in our, in our trolley and we, when we walk to the counter and I'm thinking to myself we didn't buy anything else because why she buys so many bananas is because she makes ice cream out of it. She, she freezes them and then you know, she can take them up and, and you can make nice ice cream out of it. So we're coming with all these bananas to the counter and I'm thinking to myself this guy at the counter is going to think we're like woo lost our mind. And so there we come to the counter with all the bananas. And so she's loading the bananas on the counter. And then in a moment of sheer brilliance, my wife thinks, let me explain to the guy why I'm buying so many bananas. And so she says to him, I peel the banana. But before she can say anything else, he responds and says, that's what I always do when I eat bananas. (laughs) We think that we can finish the story for God. God says something and we think... I know what you mean, God. I'll I'll do it. I'll do it. We will do it. That's the covenant. God, what you said, we will do it. My friends, allow God to finish his sentence. I will do it in you. That's the end of the sentence. Amen? Allow him to do it in you. Allow him to establish his promise in your life. Allow him to infuse into your life the power that is only found in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? And he will do what he has promised. And Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 will come to pass that he that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How many of you today want to say, I want to enter into that new covenant with God? Praise the Lord. I want to enter into that new covenant with God. I'm going to make one more appeal before we pray. And this is a less of a specific uh, appeal, so I don't, I don't expect all hands to go up. But maybe there is someone here this morning that deep, deeply realizes, also through the presentation of the word this morning, that you are living in the old covenant. You have been striving and striving and wanting to do what is right and yet you have been striving in your own strength and you understand this morning you need the power of Christ in your life. You need the power of God in your life. You need the touch of the divine upon your heart and mind. Is there someone that would like to just slip up their hand and say I need to enter into that new covenant. I've been living in the old covenant but I'm saying God help me to live in the new covenant. Praise God. Anyone else that wants to just make that commitment. Amen. Amen. And let God work in your life. Let's pray together, shall we? Shall we stand in prayer? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your precious promise in your word. The promise that you will write your commandments in our hearts and in our minds. 
Lord, it's a promise that we do not fully comprehend how you will do it, but we do trust that you will do it. Lord, on many occasions, we freely admit this morning that we have strived in our own strength, seeking to accomplish your promise and yet utterly failing, just like Abram and Sarah, as they sought in their own strength to have a child that was a child of bondage. And yet, Lord, this morning we turn to you. We turn our confidence, we put our confidence in your promise and ask that you will do for us what we never can do for ourselves. Write your commandments in our hearts and thank you, Lord, for the promise that you will remember our sins no more. Lord, erase it from our testimony. And may our testimony be one that puts your glory on display, that puts your character on display to the world around us. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for those that have decided a new and a fresh way this morning to belong to you. May you empower them with your strength. And for those that have been living in the old covenant but now desire to enter into the new covenant, I pray that you will give them your power and your strength, that you will help them to remember and understand that your strength has made power in their weakness, has made, has made perfect in their weakness. And that as they rely upon you and put their faith in you, that you can do all things that you have promised. And so we thank you for these things this morning, praying in the all-powerful and almighty name of Jesus Christ. And let everyone say, amen, amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.